And we're going to continue to talk about some difficult times tonight in, in Revelation. Um, at the same time, though, distinctly see God's control. It is timing with His people and His protection, but His timing in in their persecution and even of their lives in the midst of <clears throat> great turmoil and judgment. Um, we're reminded that this is all part of God's program and, and He will see us through. Revelation 11 You'll remember, we still have one more trumpet left to blow. That will blow, and then at the end of this chapter, the angel will blow it, and then there will be a marvelous worship scene before the seventh trumpet um, empties out its contents, which is the seventh trumpet will now be, we'll see in a little bit, the seven bowls of wrath. So there's still more to come in this. And as terrible as that is, we're going to see a wonderful, um, again, scene of worship in that. But before even we see that, the beginning of this, uh, a very interesting and often hard to interpret. In fact, I've been told, um, and I would tend to agree, that this is probably the hardest chapter in the book to interp interpret. almost said interpretate. That's not right. Um, and we're going to do our best to go through this simply with the time that we have. Um, and if you have more questions afterwards, you can come you know, see me. Some of you have, and that's been good, and I've tried to answer that the best that I can. But before um, this trumpet is blown, it will usher in the judgments. And in the midst of this, we're going to see God provides favor, power, and mercy for his people. Um, we have all kinds of struggles and difficulties in our lives and um, unexpected challenges, uh, great uh, griefs, uh, irritations, difficult things, all of these things that, that come into our lives. And sometimes they get so great that we tend to distrust or we start to doubt God. And I think, again, as I look at our tendency our sinful tendencies that are addressed in this passage, as they are in every passage, I think that it's just, we, we begin to wonder, is God really in control? When the really tough things happen, especially when the great difficulties come um, that we have great struggles with, there is a temptation to say, can God really be in control of all this? Lord, are you up there? And we're going to see today he is in fully control of all things, even the terrible things that happen in life. And even in these, we will see that, uh, and most of this will center on two powerful witnesses, God's two powerful witnesses, his specific um, men for these times. At this time, he will use powerfully and he has a specific plan for them. But it will remind us that God can also use us, his servants, powerfully as well and has a plan for each. Not like the two witnesses, but he does have a plan for us and he can use us powerfully to accomplish his purposes and will. And so let's just read part of this and go to prayer. Well, you know what? Let's, let's read the end here. Verse 16, And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, 
We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Lord, thank you for the reminder in the midst of these uh, terrible happenings in this now the second half of the Great Tribulation that you are still fully in control. You have a plan for your servants, and you will see them through that plan. A plan for, their, for allowing persecution and a plan for allowing them to be powerfully used. And Lord, even though we're confident we won't be in this time to experience this, we can see that you, will also, you also have a plan for our difficult experiences and you will bring us through. So help us to give great consideration to that. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God controls the circumstances of his people. And he controls even the time limits for his people. We're all a part of his plan, folks. And don't ever doubt that. God has, has planned for each of us the exact number of days, hours, and minutes that we have. His timing is perfect for all things. So now as we start in verse 1 of chapter 11, John is commissioned to do something else. Remember, he ate that scroll the last time, and we described what that was all about. This isn't quite as strange, uh, but it is interesting. He's commissioned to measure the temple of God. So verse 1, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff and was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar, and specifically those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Well, what is going on here? Well, um, if you remember your Old Testament, this isn't the first time one of God's men, one of his prophets, was called to measure something. Think of specifically there were others, but Ezekiel. The last number of chapters of the book of Ezekiel are long details of his measuring a future temple. And I think that's, that's, that's a difficult one to interpret as well, but I think most likely there's a representative temple uh, during the Millennial Kingdom um, that he was measuring and that um, he, he was, it, it was to show that this was an actuality and would be one day. And John here is the same thing. This is not symbolic from what we, the best interpretation here from when he's doing, that he is measuring an actual temple. This is a reference to an actual temple. It gives us details later on about where it is um, and the details about what is in it and what is taking place in it. Um, so we have the temple of God he's supposed to measure and the altar. Um, the holy, really I think here is the holy of holies. This is the, the great temple, not every aspect of the temple, but you could say the most important part. But then he's, but the, but then the most, uh, the thing that to keep in view here are actually the people that he's measuring. Um, ultimately, the focus is here on the worshipers, the faithful worshipers of God. 
They are the ones doing the worship. So really, that's the main focus in this description. Those who are worshiping God faithfully. Well, is he measuring them, like taking their height with a measuring tape or something? Well, don't think of it that way. Really, in context here, it seems best to think of this as um, he's measuring the quantity, how many worshipers there are. In other words, um, it seems in the text here that he is gauging with some sort of gauge um, that there are many people who are worshiping here. And that's what he's doing with that while he's measuring the rest. But what is this court outside the temple? Leave that out. Well, it seems that he is describing here what was called the court of the Gentiles. There was an area where the common folk and the Gentiles could go and, and worship God as well. They were not allowed into the Jewish area and closer um, to the main temple, but they had their own court. Um, and that's referred to here as the court outside the temple. Um, and he says, don't measure that. Because there will come a time of great, great persecution. And God says, leave that out. And this seems to probably the best interpretation of who is speaking here is God himself. Who gave John the measuring rod? Well, he didn't have that very large angel that was right there. We're not told for certain. Could have been that. But I think this is God here that's talking and giving him instructions. And he says, that part of the temple is given over to the nations or the Gentiles, basically those that have rejected God. They are not a part of the faithful group of worshipers, but they're those opposed to that faithful group that are there. And they will trample. Notice that it says trample, not destroy. This is not the destruction of this temple. Uh, and this will happen for 42 months and that is that three and a half years that second half of the tribulation you know as i'm thinking about numbers here i'm gonna make a side reference just in case you all were still thinking about it from last week the number of the demonic hordes um, it was 200 million and that was the answer that i had but i i didn't write it down correctly so i said two million so now we have the end of the mystery if you were still bothered by that, it was 200 uh, million demonic hordes. And regardless, we don't want to be there. I, I'm not going to be there to count them. <laughs> and you don't want to be there either. All right? So back to these numbers. 42 months is an easy one to count, right? Three and a half years. And this seems then to describe the intense persecution that um, some worshipers of God will face in even the second half of the tribulation. And he will allow this to happen. And that may bother us. And a little bit more detail here. This also tells us, since, since um, it seems to be clear that this is happening in the second part of the tribulation, this is another indication we have that um, the Jewish people have reestablished their temple. This is the actual temple. They are worshiping. All of that has been established. And although we're not told here... Um, within everything that we've talked about, at some point then the Antichrist will come and provide desecration on that temple. And we'll see more about that later. But this, again, gives us indication there is an actual place that will be reestablished for the people of God. They don't have that yet for the Jewish people. They don't have that yet, but they will at some point. And they will be able to worship God 
authentically as well. But there will be persecution. And my point is, it bothers us sometimes to think that God ordains persecution and suffering in our lives. And yet, folks, what we need to remember is that his ultimate purpose is getting glory. And that may sound selfish, but God is fully deserving of all glory and all worship and all majesty. And even as this, these worshipers are giving him glory, God is saying, I appreciate that, but it will give me even more glory as you're worshiping to go through persecution as well. And that's hard for us to understand. And yet we need to trust God that sometimes going through hard things and being persecuted can give him more glory than just our regular worship. And so be prepared and ready for that if he decides and when he decides that will happen to each of us. Don't be surprised. Think of it as, well, this way God gets more glory as I go through these hard things. So praise the Lord. Let's continue on here. In the midst of all of this, again, these are desperate, terrible times. God will not leave this dark, terrible time in the midst of all this judgment and rebellion. He will not leave without witnesses. There will be two specific witnesses here. Verse 3, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for uh, 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. And here we see, even as God brings persecution into our lives that he has ordained, he also gives power and authority to his servants as he deems that they need it. And these two um, powerful individuals, God gives them power, and they are going to witness. Um, they're going to be one of the very few uh, witnesses for Christ at this time, but everybody will notice them. Um, they will have the authority of God. They will prophesy, They will give prophecy of what's going to happen. And probably in this as well, you would expect that they also will, uh, will proclaim the gospel of Christ in this, certainly. But they're clothed in sackcloth. As effective as their ministries will be, and notice too, they, they'll have incredibly powerful ministries for a specific God-ordained time. But they're clothing sackcloth, that rough, awful material that Jewish people would wear in times of mourning, especially, but also God's prophets. And this would be a sign of the need to repent. Remember John the Baptist and his strange clothing, but also a sign of judgment as well. It was a sign of mourning to wear this. And so these uh, powerful witnesses, these servants of God will wear this sackcloth as a picture of people needing to repent and the proclamation that this is the judgment of God that the world is experiencing right now. Verse 4, this is an interesting description. These are two olive trees and the two lampstands. Well, why include that in here? Well, I think it's obvious. This is talking about the two witnesses still. And they stand before the Lord of the earth. Why are they described in this way? Well, olive trees provide fuel oil for lamps at this time and so it describes then these bright lights for Jesus Christ and they will be shining folks in an incredibly dark world really the darkest time this world has ever seen and God will still have his witnesses at this time and they will shine brightly for him 
because he's going to give them power and make them literally invincible until his plan for them is through. And they stand before the Lord of the earth, which means they come from the presence of God and they come to earth. So the very fact this also gives us, they, they have credibility. And let, let's continue further then. What is this power that is giving them? Well, if anyone would harm them, because haven't we seen, haven't, it may, hasn't been made clear that as people proclaim the gospel, that at this time they uh, people are less appreciative than ever, and there's severe persecution for the name of Christ. And we had those saints, uh, the spirits underneath the altar. And it is a terrible, it's a difficult time to proclaim Christ. So as these two powerful witnesses are proclaiming and giving testimony of Christ, people aren't going to like that, but they're not going to be able to do anything about it. Because if anyone would harm them, fire pours out of their mouths and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. I have to tell you, as I was thinking and reading through this, I thought, boy, that'd be really cool to be one of those witnesses. <laughs> you know, not that you want to um, end people's lives or that sort of thing, but to have that kind of, to be able to proclaim Christ, and if someone tries to do anything to you, you're invincible, and you can deal with them. Well, this is a unique, wonderful opportunity for these two witnesses, and God gives them the power, um, obviously, to um, consume their enemies, um, to shut the sky, to bring drought, to cut off the rain supply, to have power over the waters, to strike the earth with every kind of plague, and as much as they want to, they can do this. Now, they'll do it appropriately as God would have them to do it, but what a marvelous opportunity in this regard. Well, as people have read through this, they've come to some interpretations about who these guys might be. Um, and even, in, well, in, in early church history, they were convinced that this was two individuals from the Old Testament, Enoch and Elijah. Now, let me just stop here. Why would the early church think that? Why would they think this is, and a lot of the church fathers, most of the church fathers came to this passage, so this has to be, oh, Tom, go ahead, sorry. Two men that never died. Ah, exactly. Two men that never died, and now they're brought back um, to have more ministry for the Lord. And, you know, it, it makes sense in, in a lot of ways. But there's also another interpretation that many have taken on this, that this is not Enoch, Enoch, and Elijah, but Moses and Elijah. Now, what from the text would you see where people would get that interpretation? Aha, the plagues, yes. Um, this resembles uh, the miracles that, the, that God enabled these men to perform in their lifetimes in the Old Testament. Now, Pastor Brock, which ones do you think that they are? Well, um, I'm just going to have to say, I don't know. Those are good guesses, but in the end, as I read through this, 
There's no Greek word that says Elijah and no Greek word that says Moses. That's probably, if I had to pick two, Moses and Elijah. But honestly, folks, I don't think we're told. If it ends up being Moses and Elijah, then great. I don't worry about that kind of thing. Uh, because whoever these two individuals are, uh, they're going to be used powerfully of God. And that's really the main thing here. Um, I think the point in this is, folks, really we can consider ourselves, if I can put it this way, each of us invincible until God is done with us. In other words, nothing will happen to us. Our lives will not be cut off um, in a short time or cut off sooner than was expected um, because God has his timing in all of our lives. He knows how much time each of us has. And so much time we spent, and I, I, can, I can be the same way, fretting and being fearful and anxious about what's going to happen to us. And this is a reminder, although, again, I, I don't think any of us are going to be picked to be the two powerful witnesses. That'd be really nice if it was. We can draw from this that if God has um, made them basically invincible to bring about his program and to serve him in this way, that until God's done with us, we don't have to worry about our lives cutting off short. That never happens with God. But the full time of our lives will be realized as God has given them to us. And so that ought to help as we consider that. I will throw in a story here. This is not my story, and I usually uh, like to use stories that are personal to me, but this one uh, was used, and it always has stuck in my mind. So I'm going to borrow from one of my mentors on this one. And because I think I think it's a great illustration, and it, uh, it emphasizes this point. Uh, you, I've mentioned Pastor Gary Reamers many times, and he's pastor at Cornerstone Baptist Church uh, down in Greenville. Well, he, uh, besides having a large church there and serving at the seminary, he also um, is able many times to go around the world as and, and visit missionaries, and he's taken many trips overseas. And one time, uh, he ended up taking a trip to Eastern Europe with his second daughter, Rebecca. This was many years ago. Um, and they were visiting two different missionaries. They had visited the one that was north, and they decided to take a train trip, a train ride, to visit uh, the other missionaries. And I think they got on the wrong train, and they ended up a little bit farther in a place where, where they hadn't intended, and they were trying to get that taken care of. But there was a point where everybody got on the trains, and it was um, getting toward dark, and it was just the two of them, and there was another man that appeared and started walking toward them, and Pastor Reamer thought, uh-oh. And he was a bigger man than Pastor Reamer's, and he came up to him and said, I want your money. And Pastor Reamer said, well... Now, he did have money in his pocket, but he didn't have euros at that time. And so he said, I don't have any money that you would need. And the man didn't take that as an answer. Now, his daughter was behind him a little bit uh, over by the luggage. And he, this man had probably looked at the luggage and said, these, these people have some uh, money or, or some things that I could use, so I'm going to take it from them. And he got closer, and he was more intimidating. He said, no, I know you have money. You have something in those bags. I want it. And Pastor Reamer said, no, no, we don't. And so the man uh, lifted up his hand and pointed his fist almost right at 
Pastor Reamer's chin and stopped it there and said, you need to give me what you have right now. And Pastor Reamer's, he said, he, he remembered at that point that he had taken some karate lessons when he was in high school, but at that point that really wasn't that helpful because he didn't remember any of it. But it is true, one thing that he does have, he has a very powerful stare. I don't know if you've ever met the man. Um, and he can, he said, when I want to, I can have work up a really good glare. And so he said, I worked up my best glare and I said, no, you won't. And the man looked at him and he spat on the sidewalk and he walked away. Now, Pastor Reamers made the point in the end, it wasn't because of his intimidating presence, right? <laughs> it wasn't because he knew karate or anything like that. It was because it was not God's ordained time for him to be persecuted or for the life of him and his daughter to end. And so they were safe because God would protect them. And he'll protect us too until the time appointed for us. Well, there was a time, there, there will be a time appointed for these witnesses as God is, is through with them and they will experience trauma, but God will use that for his purposes as well. Verse 7, and when they had finished their testimony, again, the idea that God had a specific time for their testimony and for their time of ministry. And then when that was done, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Now, there's a lot of interpretations, and we hear more about the beast later on. But what I think is best here is this is a, a general reference to Satan and his minions, some powerful foe, maybe a Satan-controlled uh, Antichrist, but this, or Satan rising um, and controlling the Antichrist or something. But it does say that rises from the bottomless pit, so uh, Satan or a powerful minion of his will rise up and make war um, on these powerful individuals and he will conquer them. He will have an army. He will conquer them in a specific place and he will kill them. And you can imagine uh, for God's people how traumatic that would be to see these amazing powerful individuals who can withstand all things and all of a sudden... Uh, a Satan-controlled person or Satan himself comes and ends these, man's life, these men's lives and how despairing that would be, disappointing, discouraging. And furthermore, then he just leaves their bodies there where they've been killed. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt. And we stop there and think, okay, what great city could that be? Well, note that it has those two names, but if you look on your Bible map, Sodom and Egypt are in two different locations, right? So how could it be the same one? Well, it says symbolically. Notice, notice here, Revelation, John helps us out. This is supposed to be sim, uh, symbolism. It's called Sodom because it is recognized, both of these are derogatory descriptions, because it's recognized the tragedy here and the evil of these two faithful, powerful witnesses and their deaths. Sodom was known as a very evil, wicked place that God had to judge. And Egypt, 
also was a place where God's people were persecuted and put into slavery for many years, held in captivity. And so it's representative here that a terrible thing has happened to God's people in this great city. Well, the great city would be Jerusalem because it says where their Lord was crucified. Seems like in the very place where Jesus was crucified, these two witnesses, their bodies will be thrown. Isn't it interesting that right now we're still not for sure exactly where that is in Jerusalem. There's two different sites. So at this point, uh, it'll be made clear where that is. And this sounds like an awful thing for God to use these powerful servants and then have them cast away like this. But remember, folks, our theme, that God is in control of all the difficulties that his servants face. He has ordained them for his people. And he's not done with them yet. Because even in the midst of this terrible death, three and a half days they'll lay there in Jerusalem. Some And, and, and it gets worse. Three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. They will take the death of God's two servants and they'll make it a holiday where gifts are given because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Their presence had been powerfully felt against God's rebels, against the rebels of Jesus Christ. And so these people are literally reveling and rejoicing in the fact that these two servants are dead. I don't know about you folks, but you know it may it may seem as it used to be as I read this. It it, it seemed to me as I was a younger person, boy, the vitriol and anger that's just almost hard to imagine. I'm not trying to be too dramatic here, but it's not so hard for me to imagine that anymore with the way that things are in our nation today and in our world. <laughs> I could very well imagine two servants of God and people rejoicing in the fact over their deaths because their powerful influence is seemingly over. I can imagine a world where that would happen very easily, unfortunately. I think you can too. And it just shows, even at this point, in the midst of such terrible judgments, how the rebels continue to rebel against God and rejoice when tragedy happens to his servants. So that's not over yet. Verse 11, but after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. They're resurrected and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. You think of the media campaign and, and the streaming and the cameras and everything that will be, I'm sure, and, uh, even if you can imagine probably newscasters reveling in this. Hey, let's take a look at the scene with the two dead witnesses. Aren't we glad that, that their lives are ended? Let's look at that again. And the whole world watching this, and all of a sudden these two men come back to life and stand up. And then all of a sudden there is this powerful voice from heaven. God himself, they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. I'm sure they'll be quaking in their boots, so to speak. And at that moment, there will also be a great earthquake. And a tenth of the city fell. Not the whole city. But 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And certainly these are those that are partying and reveling and having a holiday over the death of God's servants. They will be dealt with. 
and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. You see, God controls time limits for his people and he controls the persecution and deliverance for his people as well. And this, as strange as this is, it should also be encouraging for us. It says, the second woe has passed. Behold, the third is soon to come. Let me mention something here. Some interpreters look at that last part and say that these same people that were terrified and that were um, rejoicing over the servants, when this happens, these earthquakes, it says they gave glory to the God of heaven, that at that point they turned to God and um, they're worshiping him, uh, and they're no longer rebels, but they've turned to him um, and repented. Well, I've heard another interpretation that I think is, I would agree, is a little more accurate. You don't hear this quite as much, but I think this is true. These are folks that were, again, were involved in, in holiday celebration over the death of God's saints. And I think what this is describing is that these people are still rebels. They're still denying, they're still um, enemies of God, and yet even God's enemies at this point will give him glory, whether they're aligned with him or not. And the point is, God will get his glory one way or another from the people on the earth. And they will have to recognize that he is truly king over all. And you, you know that one day all will bow the knee. And here's a precursor to that. That even these rebels that still are God's enemies and against him will be forced to give him glory when they see this power and the magnificence of these miracles. They will have to give him glory. God will get the glory that he deserves, folks, from, from all of us, from the earth. And that's encouraging as well as, as uh, sobering for us. Well, God controls the circumstances of his people, but God receives glory for his dealings with all people. And as the seventh angel now blows this trumpet and begins what will be the seven bull judgments, we have, as we read earlier, we have his people rejoicing over his rule. Verse 15, the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And what are they rejoicing over here? God's people are rejoicing that the kingdom is basically here. That, they, that it is just a short matter of time before the kingdom is established. There will be these final bold judgments and then Christ will come and they're rejoicing over the rule of God over this terrible broken world loudly worshiping and loudly proclaiming and as terrible as these upcoming judgments are it's wonderful to have this picture of God's people rejoicing in worship and it reminds us that whatever terrible things that we go through folks we still should be able to worship God with joy and thanksgiving because we know that Jesus is returning. And we get to worship with him forever. And here's another taste of that, verse 16. The 24 elders who sit on the thrones, remember those guys? Before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. Really, isn't Revelation a, a book of worship? It's a constant theme here. His people rejoicing over his rule and they said, verse 17, we give thanks to you, 
Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. And it doesn't say who is to come because they know he's coming. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. And this is the joy song of all believers, folks. It's these folks that just realize it's happening. It's coming soon. But it ought to be the song of all of our hearts. Here's interesting as well. His people will rule, will rejoice over his reign, excuse me, will rejoice and worship him in his rule, but they'll also rejoice and worship him because of his judgments. Verse 18, the nations rage, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged. It's time. It's time for God to finally bring the final judgment upon sin and upon death and hell and the grave and all of these. And um, these people are rejoicing that that time has come and justice is now being served. Now that may sound a little heavy, but it, it certainly is appropriate for us to want, rejoice and desire God's justice and his kingdom to come. That we can experience that. And yes, God's enemies will have to be thrown down and have to be dealt with. But the beauty of his justice will cause us all to sing. But it's not all sobering. There's some wonderful aspects as well. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. God's enemies will be judged. His people will be rewarded. And all of the great threats that they're facing in, in the Revelation and that we face today, folks, will one day be dealt with in finality. And that will be a wonderful cause for rejoicing. And God responds to this worship. Verse 19, Then God's temple in heaven was opened. Now this is the heavenly temple. And the Ark of the Covenant was seen within his temple. And there were flashes of lightnings, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and heavy hail. Again, signs of God's power and his acceptance of their worship. And also, um, the beginning, the prelude, whenever these things come, come up, it's like, okay, judgment is now going to happen again. But why the Ark of the Covenant in the midst of all this? Seen in his heavenly temple. Well, what does the Ark of the Covenant reflect? but the promises of God toward his people, his power, and what he did for his people, and also his mercy. And so God responds to this wonderful worship and rejoicing. And I just this just came to mind. But out of the two, you have the partying and reveling against God, against his witnesses, and now we have rejoicing and true happiness and um, excitement for what God is going to do. Folks, I hope your heart is fully in desire of that second rejoicing. I know mine is. And God will respond and remind us that he is the God of all promises, that he has promised us his power and his mercy. In the midst of judgment, God's people, he will uh, be faithful to the promises of his people. And whatever you're facing whatever great difficulty that you're going through, whatever we face in this nation, we can still be reminded that God will see his promises fulfilled for us.
And no matter what the terrible thing is that we go through, we can take great hope in that. God is in control. He's in control of our lives, the timing of our lives, of his program for what he wants us to do. And he will fulfill his promises in our lives as well. That's wonderful encouragement in the midst of a rather strange chapter, but wonderful all at the same time. Father, thank you for this reminder. Again, you're in control. You're sovereign. And, and you will do with us what you will have done. And you will receive the glory that you deserve. And we should submit to that and rejoice in that. That should not be a problem for us. But we should um, delight in the fact that you um, are in full control, sovereign control, and that you will receive all the glory and make all things right in the end. Help us to leave from here with that reminder on our minds and be encouraged as we go from here. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.